the uh, the title in my Bible. I don't know what you if you have titles over Psalms. Sometimes they try to give a thematic uh, title to the Psalm as it is. This one says, "The God of Sinai and of the Sanctuary," and uh, certainly He is. Um, this is, of course, a song. It says, for the choir director, a psalm of David, a song. And uh, we're going to, Lord willing, scratch the surface tonight of this psalm. We will be in it uh, certainly next week and perhaps the week after. But let's read through it. And um going to come across some interesting things in this psalm. I trust that uh, we'll... Uh, make us curious, and but I, I also hope that we will recognize that this psalm is ultimately about God. It's about God, and um, you can see that from beginning to end, as far as the the wording or the words, uh, praise of God, worship of God. But uh, the psalm itself is filled with all sorts of good things. Let's read it together. Let God arise. Let his enemies be scattered, and let those who hate him flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before the fire, so let the wicked perish before God. But let the righteous be glad. Let them exult before God. Yes, let them rejoice with gladness. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song for him who rides through the deserts, whose name is the Lord, and exult before him. A father of the fatherless and a judge for the widows is God in his holy habitation. God makes a home for the lonely. He leads out the prisoners into prosperity. Only the rebellious dwell in a parched land. O God, when you went forth before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, Selah, the earth quaked. The heavens also dropped rain at the presence of God. Sinai itself quaked at the presence of God, the God of Israel. You shed abroad a plentiful rain, O God. You confirmed your inheritance when it was parched. Your creatures settled in it. You provided in your goodness for the poor, O God. The Lord gives the command. The women who proclaim the good tidings are a great host. Kings of armies flee. They flee, and she who remains at home will divide the spoil. When you lie down among the sheepfolds, you're like the wings of a dove covered with silver and its pinions with glistening gold. When the Almighty scattered the kings there, it was snowing in Zalmon. A mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with envy, O mountains with many peaks, at the mountain which God has desired for his abode? Surely the Lord will dwell there forever. The chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. You have ascended on high. You have led captive your captives. You've received gifts among men, even among the rebellious also, that the Lord God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burden, the God who is our salvation, Selah. God is to us a God of deliverances, and to God the Lord belong escapes from death. Surely God will shatter the head of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who goes on in his guilty deeds. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan, 
I will bring them back from the depths of the sea that your foot may, be sh uh, may shatter them in blood. The tongues of your dogs may have its portion from your enemies. They have seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my king, into the sanctuary. The singers went on, the musicians after them, in the midst of the maidens beating tambourines. Bless God in the congregations, even the Lord, you who are the fountain of Israel. There is Benjamin, the youngest, ruling them, the princes of Judah in their throng, the princes of Zebulun, the princes of Naphtali. Your God has commanded your strength. Show yourself strong, O God, who have acted on our behalf. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring gifts to you. Rebuke the beasts and the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the peoples, trampling underfoot the pieces of silver who has scattered the peoples who delight in war. Envoys will come out of Egypt. Ethiopia will quickly stretch out her hands to God. Sing to God, O kingdoms of the earth. Sing praises to the Lord, Selah. To him who rides upon the highest heavens, which are from the ancient times. Behold, he speaks forth with his voice, a mighty voice. Ascribe strength to God. His majesty is over Israel and his strength is in the skies. O God, you are awesome from your sanctuary. The God of Israel himself gives strength and power to the people. Blessed be God. May the Lord bless reading his word to our hearts. Did you see anything unusual there? God riding through the deserts, verse 4. Rain. At Mount Sinai, verse 8, an envious mountain, that Mount Bashan, which is envious. Prior to that, in verses 11 and down through verse 14, there's women who are a great host proclaiming good tidings. There's the fleeing of kings, and there's someone who's dividing the spoil, and somehow, as she divides the spoil, there are others who are lying down among sheepfolds, and there's a question as to whether or not verse 13, the end of the verse, refers to the women, or what they have, or description of those who lie among the sheepfolds. Chariots, but not just earthly chariots, chariots of God. If you look at verse 18, you may have a cross-reference there to Ephesians, which refers to Christ's ascension. And so the words, you've ascended on high, you've led captive your captives, in the New Testament is used as a reference to Christ. And we'll consider that, but another, uh, I would say, challenge for us as we read through this. And then beyond the challenges, I mean, we have more. We have uh, a hairy crown in verse 21. We have dogs drinking blood in verse 23. We have Benjamin ruling Israel, verse 27, but this is written by David. 
Jericho is the tribe of Judah. We have beasts in verse 30 in the reeds. We have a herd of bulls with calves, but it's not the animals. It says of the peoples, and they're trampling silver. And then you have these envoys that are coming out of Egypt and Ethiopia that is looking to God. And that could be Cush, another African nation. One person wrote, and this is not someone who, whose uh, theology of the word of God I agree with as far as preservation, but he said, there is hardly another song in the Psalter, which in its corrupt text and its lack of coherence precipitates such serious problems for the interpreter as Psalm 68. Lack of coherence. Is that what it feels like to read through the Psalm, that this doesn't exactly go together? That's why someone said this is just a collection of poems that are put together kind of randomly. One writer said, most difficult of all the psalms. Another writer said, a complex psalm that has baffled commentators for some time. (laughs) Spurgeon said, the psalm is at once surpassingly excellent and difficult. Its darkness in some stanzas is utterly impenetrable. Well, does a German critic speak of it as a titan, very hard to master? Our slender scholarship has utterly failed us, and we have followed, had to follow a sure guide. And nevertheless, there's a significant commentary on Psalm 68, but Spurgeon's saying, I need help. Another writer called this psalm the cross of critics, the reproach of interpreters. In the Jewish ritual, one writer said, the psalm is used at Pentecost, the anniversary of the giving of the law and the feast of the finished harvest. The remarkable character of the psalm is indicated by the fact that there are no fewer than 13 words in it, which are not found elsewhere. He says the Pentecostal gift of tongues seems needed for its full exposition. Well, I don't have that gift. But I trust as we take our time and we look at the psalm, that it'll be encouragement to us. One person called it one of the most ancient monuments of Hebrew poetry. So it is a poem. I do believe there's some coherence. Did you see the coherence? Sometimes it takes a little work to see the connection. We have in verse 24 mentioned a procession a procession into the sanctuary, procession of God, which if you were to look in scripture for a procession of God in the Old Testament in particular, what would you find? You would find the Ark of the Covenant. Where is the Ark of the Covenant going? Where was its journey? Where is its final destination? Well, we know it was made at Sinai, upon God's command. The book of Exodus tells us that he gave commands, and Bezalel and Aholiab and the ones that they taught made those things for the tabernacle. The ark was one of those things that just continued on, was eventually, remember, carried through Israel's history, lost to the Philistines for a period of time, regained, went to the house of... uh, Obed-Edom for a period of time after David tried to bring it in, 
to Jerusalem. But then eventually that ark came to Jerusalem because David conquered Jerusalem. And he brought the ark into Jerusalem as a signal of the presence of God there. And God specified, as we read through and studied 2 Samuel, he specified the location for the altar on Mount Zion, where Ornan had previously owned the property, but David bought it. And then that became, in biblical history, the temple spot. That became the place where the temple was located. So this procession, as this procession continues, and it comes to the place where God dwells, as his people bless him, this, is, this appears to be a song or a psalm that was written for that occasion. It appears to be. I'm not going to say that with dogmatism. What's interesting in verse 1 is that if David indeed wrote it for that purpose, David references the movement of the ark in the first verse. Anybody have a cross-reference in verse 1? You see Numbers chapter 10. And turn over there for a moment. Numbers six is where the priestly blessing is. Psalm sixty seven references that blessing. Numbers ten, verse. 35 is Moses' words as the ark set out, as it moved. Start in verse 33. Then they, thus they set out from the mount of the Lord three days' journey with the ark of the covenant of the Lord journeying in front of them for the three days to seek out a resting place for them. The cloud of the Lord was over them by day when they set out from the camp. Then it came about when the ark set out that Moses said, rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. And let those who hate you flee before you. When it came to rest, he said, return, O Lord, to the myriad thousands of Israel. So back to Psalm 68, verse 1. That means that Psalm 68, verse 1, the first verse is a quotation of Moses's prayer. Let God arise or rise up, O God. Let his enemies be scattered. Let those who hate him flee before him. So I think there's a pretty good indication that this is in reference to an, a movement of the ark from one place to another. Spurgeon has a, an outline. If you want to ever uh, read his exposition, I'm sure you would do so with enjoyment and profit. But he divides the psalm, verses 1 and 2, as the lifting up of the ark, the procession beginning. Verses 3 through 6, the godly who are exhorted to praise. They're assembled, but they're exhorted to commence their songs, he says, 
And then there are some arguments to give them joy in God as to who God is. Verse three, but let the righteous be glad. There's that call to rejoicing. Verse four, singing. And then singing for who? Singing for him who rides through the deserts. That word desert, it is translated that way in some translations. Others' translations use the word clouds. So when it says lift up a song for him who rides through the deserts, it could be lift up a song for him who rides the clouds. And if it's the clouds, there certainly is a connection to the end of the psalm that kind of gives us a bookend theme. Look at verse 33. To him who rides upon the highest heavens, which are from ancient times. Okay, this is the the God who rides upon the heavens. And he is to receive the worship of his people. And so as you think about this psalm, I do think that bookend helps us to see, of course, God is the subject, but it's this heavenly rider who leads his people. What is he riding upon? He's riding upon his throne. Who's bearing his throne? His cherubim who are throne bearers, if we look at the broader picture of Scripture. Why were there cherubim on the top, on the lid of the Ark of the Covenant? Because that was what they do. They bear his throne. Now, does God need to ride? No, but there's a a picture here of God present with his people. And in order to give us some understanding of what God is like, God uses these things to teach us that he truly is with his people. Uh, There are some names of God used throughout the psalm. I think we'll have to take a look at those in in more particular uh, next week. But when you look through the psalm, you will see different names of God used. Some of them are not translated as clearly. But the argument in verses 5 and 6 has to do with the character of this God. What kind of a God is he? What kind of God calls for the praises of his people? You can see in verses 5 and 6, the distinct character and care of God for his people. We'll take more time to explore those. But then verse 7 is the marching of God. It says, when you went forth before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, the earth quaked, the heavens also dropped rain in the presence of God. And if you were to Take a time in history when God did that. When did God march with his people and before his people? Well, this is in Egypt. This is as he led them out through the way of the wilderness. And as he came to, verse 8 speaks about Sinai. There's a reference there to rain and the blessing upon the land. Some would see that as even a reference to the land of Israel once they finally got into the land. But then we have the matter of this battle. So the march of Jehovah in through the wilderness, but then a battle in which God is victorious. There are kings. And if you were to look at Israel's history, when kings fought against Israel, my 
thought and inclination when I first read through this and tried to pin the geography was to Gibeon, that battle when Israel, remember, had come into the land, they'd conquered Jericho, they'd conquered Ai, they'd made a treaty with Gibeon. Gibeon was then attacked, and so they went to fight against Gibeon, uh, or with Gibeon, rather, against those who were attacking them. There were five kings who were allied with one another against Gibeon, and as Israel fought, that's the day that the sun stood still. Joshua prayed, and God stopped the sun, and they were able to fight their battle, but those kings took off. They left their armies, and when they were caught and put in a cave, Joshua said, just put them in a cave, and we'll deal with them later, but when he came to them, he had them executed, hung on a tree, and said, to the leaders of Israel, this is what God is going to do to all of your enemies. But it was definitely a time when the kings fled. And that's not the only time. In fact, as you read through verses 11 and down through verse 14, and you compare this passage, anybody have a cross-reference there, verses 11 through 14? To the book of Judges. Stick a finger here and let's turn back to Judges. Judges chapter 4. I'm not going to read through chapter, but this is the defeat of Sisera by Barak. Deborah was the prophetess who gave him encouragement and direction. This is the chapter where Jael, Heber's wife, took the ten pig and put it through Sisera's temple, and the battle was won. But in the next chapter, as Deborah sings a song and she begins to praise the Lord for what he's done, there are references within the context of this song, to the psalm we're looking at. I'll just give a, for instance, because we can't trace all of the connections at the moment, but remember the sheepfolds in the psalm? As Deborah is describing the battle, those who came to the battle, Verse 14, it says, from Ephraim, those whose root is in Amalek came down, following you, Benjamin, with your peoples. From Maker, commanders came down, and from Zebulun, those who wield the staff of office. And the princes of Issachar were with Deborah, as was Issachar, so was Barak. Into the valley they rushed at his heels. Among the divisions of Reuben, there were great resolves of heart, or that word could also be searchings of heart. So, There are references in those verses to the same tribes that are referenced in the psalm. But in verse 16, it says, why did you sit among the sheepfolds? To hear the piping for the flocks? That was mistaken. It's this verse that says the searchings of heart. Among the divisions of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Why? Because apparently Reuben didn't come to the battle. 
So sitting in the sheepfolds was not exactly the place to be. But even though there was that, whether it's cowardice or whatever the reason, it's kind of a rebuke there in the song. But look back at the psalm, turn back to Psalm 68. And there's, again, if you compare translations, you can see how this could be a reference to this very battle. Kings of armies flee, they flee, and she who remains at home will divide the spoil. When you lie among the sheepfolds, but then the words, you are supplied. In that verse, in the New American Standard, you are is supplied. Because what appears to be happening, and this is the way I would understand this, and again, we're going to take some more time with this, is that these women are dividing the spoil. And verse 13, the end of the verse, is a description of the kind of spoil they have. God gave the victory even without Reuben's help. Because God was commanding the battle. God was with his people. God was bringing victory. So this is a historic victory that could be attributed not to the armies of Israel alone, but to the presence of God with them. And so verse 14 says, when the Almighty scattered the kings there, it was snowing in Zalmon. Another curious statement. But Verses 11 through 14 draw attention to the historic victory or victories, depending on how you interpret it, of God as he led his people. Okay, so if you're thinking of God on the march, coming out of Egypt, leading his people through the wilderness, certainly blessing them, but when they encounter the enemy, when they fight against the enemy, victory is given. That's God on the march. And he's marching to Zion. He's heading to that place where his place of rest is. And he's defeating his enemies along the way. And so, as you look at verses 15 down through 19, if this was written for the procession, and the procession is coming, the Israelites are coming closer to the place where the ark is going to be, and the focus is very clearly this mountain, The mountain is actually not as impressive in terms of its height as the mountains that are described here. Verse 15, a mountain of God is the mountain of Bashan. A mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. That's not Jerusalem. Jerusalem's not like that. And yet that mountain is envious of this mountain where the ark is going because God is going to dwell there. This is the place where God has chosen. And so you see that, especially in verse 16. Why do you look with envy, O mountains with many peaks, at the mountain which God has desired for his abode? Surely the Lord will dwell there forever. And the reference, of course, to the chariots of God. If you were to study through Mount Sinai and what happened on Mount Sinai, and then look at passages which comment back on Mount Sinai and talk about what happened there. There's certainly the description that Moses gave in Exodus. But as the psalmists look back, and even as Stephen and the book of Hebrews look back, 
there's a description of God being there, of course, with Moses. But when God appears, when God comes in glory and manifestation of his presence, who does he bring with him? He brings his angels. And so the chariots of God, the myriads there, the thousands upon thousands are the angels of God attending him as he's giving the law. Now, this passage is not drawing attention to Sinai per se. It's drawing attention to Jerusalem. And that's why it says, look at verse 17, chariots of God are myriads, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them as at Sinai in holiness. So when God comes to dwell, when he comes to this place, Jerusalem, God in all of his glory and who he is, he's attended by the angels all of the time. And here he comes. And it's this same God who is worthy of the praises of his people for his goodness, for his salvation. You see that in verses 19 and 20 is dealing with his enemies. We'll look at that in more detail down through verse 23. The procession is not a private one. It's a public one. The enemies, David testifies, have seen this procession. So verse 24, they have seen your procession, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. And what's that procession comprised of? It's singers, those who are musicians, people who are blessing God, and of course, the reference to the tribes. Now, if you were to look back again at Judges 4, we already read through that portion of Deborah's song, but there's a reference in that song to Benjamin, Judah, Zebulun, Naphtali. Those same tribes are mentioned here for some reason the historic God of Israel who had led them in victory is the same God with the same people who is now coming to Jerusalem. And there's more that we'll look at with regard to those uh, tribes. But then as he comes, as he establishes his worship here, again, we're just looking over the Psalm, not trying to get into every verse Tribute is brought. God's glory shines in that place. And because of who God is as the king of all the earth, God is not just the king of Israel. He's the king of the nations. And so when you look at verses 28 and following, notice especially verse 29, because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring gifts to you. And then in verse 32, sing to God, O kingdoms of the earth, sing praises to the Lord. While this procession that David is giving to the ark as it comes to Jerusalem is a small, you might say, local event, just this nation. David's anticipation is that this kingdom and this king will be the kingdom of the whole earth, that God will reign over all of the nations. And so he calls, verse 32, all the kingdoms to praise the Lord. And then again, he draws attention to the God who rides upon the highest heavens. His mighty voice, verse 33, and calling for the praise of his people. 
and ends with that praise, oh God, you are awesome from your sanctuary. The God of Israel himself gives strength and power to the people. Blessed be God. One writer, as he's describing this, this was helpful to me as I was studying the psalm and kind of set framed in my mind what's taking place here. He quotes from that passage back in Numbers where Moses had given a prayer as the ark set out. He says, this in turn connects us with the days of David, suggests that we may have another David psalm, which the poet king himself composed. If the words rise up, O Lord, may your enemies be scattered, may your foes flee before you were used, as Numbers tells us, whenever the ark set out, it would most certainly have figured among the ceremonies of the last splendid stage of its journey. In other words, the ark was made at Sinai and over hundreds of years, it's making its way to Jerusalem with his people. He says, to David fell the privilege of organizing the procession for that day. The event is described in 2 Samuel 6. What could be more likely than the composition of a choral work, especially for the occasion? And what could be more apt than an extravagant fantasia based upon the three-line prayer of Moses used every time the ark moved? And who but Israel's singer of songs would have written it? David, if he indeed is the author, has in mind a further famous event, one between Moses' time and his own, the classic instance of Israelite triumph over Canaanite forces in the days of the judges. And so he then references Judges chapter 4 and 5. For David, I'll just keep on reading, verses 7 and 8, 12, 13, and 18 all echo the song of Deborah. First of these four passages is of particular interest for Deborah, the God who had led her colleague Barak and his army to victory was the God of Sinai, Moses' God. Whether literally or metaphorically, the earth quaked and a storm raged when God fought for Israel in their time, just as when God met with Israel in Moses' time. For David, both what God did when Israel left Egypt and to what he did when she settled in Canaan are prime examples of the kind of thing that he does regularly. So Deborah, in her song, is connecting the events of the victory of that day back to Sinai. David, in his day, is connecting the entrance of the ark into Jerusalem to God's triumph, which was signaled, of course, in his victory back in Deborah's day, and then his victory back in the Exodus. Don't miss it. So this psalm is also about the ascension of Christ. You see where I'm going? Victory, salvation. Victory, salvation. Victory, salvation. When Christ died upon the cross, rose again, ascended into heaven, victory, salvation. This is our God. And he's certainly worthy of our praise. This song draws attention to it. And yes, it is complex. Yes, it is challenging. But uh, I love really the, just the basic truth that this same victorious saving God is a God, verse 19, who blesses 
us daily. Look at verse 19. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears our burden, the God who is our salvation. Let's close tonight with the singing of a hymn, 491. Let's stand together and sing. That great God cares about each one of us. The Son cares about us. Let's sing that care and love. 491, does Jesus care? Does Jesus care when my heart is pain too deeply for mirth and song? As the birds